Hello and welcome to A Weird Together. I'm Brenna Store, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. And this is the show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror film. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, how you doing? I am great. I am living the Hobbit life. Do you know the Hobbit life, Bren? Everything I know about Hobbits involves second breakfast. That is part of it. Okay. The Hobbit life is a term me and uh, some of my friends have come up with for this really great life of an academic where you work two thirds of the year. Uh, You get up, have coffee, maybe second breakfast, talk about ideas, go hang out at coffee shops. It's really a grand life. and, And people who don't get that life sometimes hate me for it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'll text my girlfriend, hey, you know, at 9, 9.30, yeah, I'm having my coffee, just woke up, and she's been up since 5.30, and she's like, fuck you. You know, so, you know, the Hobbit life is grand. I am a Hobbit master. That sounds great. It sounds really similar to my life, except I do it alone. So I guess I have the Gollum life. <laughs> nice, nice. So do you have your precious? What's your precious? Oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> You're right. You really don't. Speaking of precious, or precious to me at least, I suspect our opinions are going to differ on this one. This week on the show, we are watching Joe Lynch's Suitable Flesh. Suitable Flesh is a loose adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Thing on the Doorstep and tells the story of psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Darby and her encounter with a being much older and much more dangerous than anything she's ever encountered before. And before we talk about suitable flesh, Joseph, we got to do that thing we do on the show where we acknowledge we never watch a movie in a vacuum. You always go in with expectations. You always go in with your past experience. And so before we talk about the film, we got to talk about the baggage. All right, my beautiful bald hobbit friend, what, if anything, was your baggage going into suitable flesh? Well, um, you had kind of given me a little bit of a heads up that Reanimator was sort of a, as you called it, a spiritual success, or this was a spiritual successor to Reanimator. So I did go back and watch Reanimator. So I had that fresh in my mind, you know. So obviously, and we'll get into this, some of the connections, uh, both on screen and behind the camera, so to speak, were part of my thought process with that. Um, certainly, I was familiar with Heather Graham, uh, you know, going back to Swingers, the film. Not the lifestyle. And, uh, not in Southern Georgia, it's not. And <laughs> you'd be surprised. Uh, not that I, <laughs> listen, we'll talk off air. Not that I have, uh, any experience with that, but I've heard stories. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Even in small communities, maybe especially in small communities. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. So, you know, the, the connections to Reanimator were probably the main thing that I went into this because then I was looking for, you know, what were those points of connection? But aside from that and familiarity with Heather Graham, I will say, though, there was something in terms of the plot that reminded me of a film that I had seen years ago that I enjoyed. And we'll we'll get into that in the Toctagon. So that was more or less my baggage. Okay, so my baggage was was considerably more. It usually is. Yeah, that's fair. In, In every part of my life. It starts really, it's with the director, Joe Lynch. So Lynch, in addition to being a filmmaker, Lynch is also host, uh, co-host of the Movie Crypt podcast. And I started listening to the Movie Crypt podcast. I can't remember how I found it, but it was in roughly, I want to say November of 2018. And I have now listened to, I would say probably hundreds of hours of that podcast. 
Um, he co-hosts it with Adam Green, who directs the Hatchet franchise, which I've mentioned a number of times in this show, uh, along with other things, but he's best known for Hatchet. And honestly, I, I owe, I, I, I don't half sell this, like I owe my ability to make a living now as an artist to the Movie Crypt podcast. Like that show helped me understand who I am as an artist and why I behave the way I behave. So really without that show, without Joe Lynch, I'm not here uh, because obviously now I make a living full-time as a podcaster. That A lot of that stems from lessons I learned from the very frank interviews with other creatives on that show. Again, things that I just, I didn't understand. And the way my brain works, I kind of have to be told the rules of things before I can function within them. I can't, like I can stand behind from a distance and, and observe the rules and infer. But if I don't have a connection to that thing, which I never really had an artistic community, I can't, I can't suss it out from a distance. So hundreds of hours of the movie crypt was sort of like laying in all this knowledge that allowed me to understand, you know, why my brain does certain things, why other people do certain things. And so, yeah, I, I am predisposed to like the things that Joe Lynch and Adam Green make. Uh, I don't listen to the show as much as I used to for various reasons. I mean, sometimes I think they get hung up on uh, culture war bullshit that I, I just don't think is relevant or important. But, but still, I, I actually just resubscribed a little while ago uh, because I am weirdly uh, sort of finding myself in, in the film world now, as I mentioned. On the last show, I think, uh, I was cast in a short film and I, I've just been cast in a, in a local feature. So I'm kind of, yeah, finding myself in that place, when I, which is not something I ever anticipated. So I, having those lessons is again, is again valuable. So yeah, I am, I'm inclined to like the work of Joe Lynch. I, I'm also, I, I, I'm not as much of a Lovecraft fan as I used to be, but I am, you know, whenever I hear about a new Lovecraft adaptation, especially if it's from someone whose work I admire, I'm always maybe a little more predisposed to appreciate it than otherwise I might be. So you could say I had a lot of baggage uh, going into Suitable Flesh. I should say the other thing as well, having listened to the Movie Crypt podcast, I think it was just about when I stopped listening that Lynch was in post-production on this film. So I sort of remember hearing about it from when he first got the script to basically when he had just got back from filming it. So I, I, there was a lot of anticipation on my part, which I, I imagine played into my experience of the film as well. So my baggage for the film is, is substantial. Now, there is but one place where men such as us can have a conversation about movies, Joseph, where we can even acknowledge that we have feelings, and that is because it is cloaked in the pageantry of brutality that is the Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. All right, Joseph. Tell me how much you loved <laughs> Suitable Flesh. Well, I liked it better than Demonic, so <laughs> there's that. Oh, uh, I, I, I don't know. I think I liked Demonic more. I did like Suitable actually, Flesh, I liked Demonic more. Actually, I might have liked Demonic. Oh, my better. God. <laughs> All right. Oh, Joe Lynch, turn off the podcast. <laughs> right, right. You're not going to want to hear this. It's going to get or skip to my part. You're right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I didn't love it for a number of reasons. I mean, I, it was entertaining. I did watch. I mean, it, you know, there were there are films we've watched that I was less entertained by. I will say that. You know, expectations are always kind of part of what comes into this. And this film had a bigger budget than a lot of films we've watched. It's not a massive budget, but, you know, you could tell, you know, from what they've done that they had more of a budget than, you know, some of the smaller films we've, we've discussed. 
Certainly there was at least the name recognition with Heather Graham and things like that. And so, you know, for what it had potentially to work with, it felt like it underdelivered. Uh, I, you know, films with, that had a lot less to work with did a lot more in, you know, kind of in, in my experience watching these films. So I didn't love it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't want to be in the position where I'm I'm defending the film uh, because you know I, that's not sort of the, I don't necessarily think that's the point of the format. However, I will say that I don't actually know what the budget for this was. I know that another film, the production company, I believe it's the same production company, Amp did was glorious, and that had a budget of about eight hundred thousand. And I figure this, if so, if I had to guess, I'd say this was around two. But you got to factor in uh, salaries for Bruce Davison, who is, uh, you know, a uh, bigger star. Uh, Heather Graham, of course, probably, you know, uh, a significant portion of that. So in, in fairness, it, it had a bigger budget than some of the stuff we've done. But also there are sometimes above the line stuff takes a bigger chunk out of the below the line portion right. of the budget. Let me ask you this. How do you think the budget compared to, for example, Allegoria? Oh, I imagine it was considerably more. Like Allegoria... I thought did a lot of things much better in terms of film craft with a much smaller budget. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I think Allegoria, you could argue, had the advantage of being something that was shot with friends. So it didn't have the, um, d- didn't, well, that, and they, they could take the time. You know, e- even Bury the Bride, I think you could argue that it had, they had the freedom because they weren't really working under anyone. You know, there, there, was, there weren't a number of producers kind of weighing in on the final product and, and, it was all kind of shot in one very contained location uh, to which I assume they, they had rights. So I, I would say that, yeah, I mean, that's, it's maybe not a hundred percent apples to apples comparison, but, but it is a good point. Yeah. I think Ennis Main would be another one, right? Like that, that's probably the most efficient use of resources in a film I've seen in terms of just maximum impact for a great film on something that probably was not terribly expensive yeah, to to film. And Although produce. again, uh, in, again, in fairness, Ennis Main, as I recall, the director whose name escapes me at the moment, he had the opportunity because he lives in Cornwall, so he had the opportunity to go and shoot a lot of B roll the following summer. So he was able to do a lot of the inserts by himself. And I guess that's what I mean. Like if you're if you're you're such an indie production that you can then go and just do a bunch of pickup stuff on your own or with a couple friends. It's it even though you're working with fewer resources, it does actually put you in a slightly more privileged position that way. You know, let's start with the connections, right, to Reanimator. I think that's a good point to start where I'm also not, you know, talking tons of shit about the film. That was an inter- I think one of the things that kept me interested, right? You know, kind of looking for those. Barbara Crampton, who played Dr. Danny Upton, right, played Megan Halsey in Reanimator, right? So that was right off the bat an obvious connection. Um, you also had the same medical school as Reanimator, like literally the same location, literally the same shot with the name of it, you know, uh, in text there. So clearly that was a point of connection. And then even something a little bit smaller, like uh, more subtle, like the security guard at the morgue, just in both films, you know, the, the, the gentleman that worked there in Suitable Flesh was very reminiscent of the security guard at the morgue in Reanimator. And certainly there's, you know, the loose theme of sort of consciousness and what, you know, and life and being animated. And, you know, although it took a very different approach towards it, you know, that was at least a, a, a loosely a theme that was similar. So certainly those connections were interesting. Um, and they also, though, tie to what will down the road in this conversation be kind of one of my critiques. But certainly that was interesting to kind of look for those points of connections. And I'm curious if there were any that I missed that you might be familiar with 
from this film? I'm sure there were. I mean, Lynch is a, a filmmaker who loves movies and knows movies at a level that uh, I can only dream of knowing. Like it's his his film knowledge, uh, not just like as a fan of film, is incredible. So there there's a lot of shit I know don't miss. I mean, the, as you as you mentioned, the film is firmly set or meant to be set in the world of Reanimator and, and from beyond. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, and and Dagon actually because this is sort of a a continuation of Stuart Gordon's Lovecraft universe. So of course Gordon did those films, you know, Dagon and From Beyond and, and Reanimator, and it's and and as you and as I imagine you're going to say, I think it both benefits from and suffers from the comparison. Because Stuart Gordon was uh, an enormously talented director, and the story is that he handpicked Lynch to make this script because it was something that he had tried to put together apparently for years before he passed. It just didn't happen. The script, of course, written by Dennis Paoli, who was the writer of Reanimator and From Beyond. Stuart Gordon was, yeah, he was an enormously talented man, and I think. Joe Lynch is, is a talented guy. I think he's got a great visual sense. I think he's got a great Gonzo style when he's really set loose. But he's not Stuart Gordon. And I think the, I think the film suffers from the comparison to a certain degree. In, in terms of like what specific references were there, I, I, there was a few things I caught, like very obvious Lovecraft things, you know. But I couldn't point out specifically, oh, this connects to From Beyond, this connects to Reanimator. My brain isn't wired like that. You know, it is interesting you talk about, what, you know, how this kind of kind of failed to do what Reanimator did. I think Reanimator pulled off some humor that this film just couldn't pull off. Re- you know, Reanimator's got this at points subtle and points not so subtle kind of comedic kind of sense to it. And it felt like maybe Suitable Flesh was trying to do that, but just it it didn't land. Yeah, I, I feel like it, it it was aiming for a little bit of camp. And I, to a certain degree, I think it got there, right? I don't know that there's any laugh moments, but I, I just sort of the whole film kind of found myself going, yeah, because it's, it's a very horny movie. It is very much, a, I think, a celebration of sort of 90s erotic thrillers. Like, that's what it felt like to me. Um, I, one of the complaints that, that the film has gotten is that it's got like Skinamax lighting or Cinemax lighting, but that was an intentional choice because those films are sort of shot in that way. And, and what the director has said in, in interviews is that he wanted to put across that this character of Elizabeth, who is the narrator, she grew up watching these kinds of things. These would have, these would have been this when, so when she's telling a story, she's telling a story in the style of things she would observe when she was younger as like entertainment. Cause he thinks that, and rightly, I think that when we structure narrative now, especially around our lives, quite often it's, it's within the framework of film. And so his take was that it would look like this sort of breathy 90s, you know, The Last Seduction or Body Chemistry or things like that. It would, it would have that kind of look to it. That's interesting because that was one of my critiques of it is it looked like, you know, one of those Skinamax films in terms of lighting and everything. And I, I see as you described it that that was an intentional choice, but sometimes some things just are too close to striking. I don't know. It's just something about that, that choice didn't work because in to the viewer, it looks like a, a shortcoming instead of a choice. If that makes sense. Uh, because that would be the kind of thing you would expect a low budget film 
put together this way with a with a with a, a, a actor with some some star power, but that's kind of well beyond their heyday in Heather Graham, you know, in terms of being in the front forefront of getting great roles, so to speak. A film that has all that that's put together in this way, that would be the thing you would expect it to look like if it wasn't done well. <laughs> and then that was an intentional choice for a reason, but it backfired in my opinion. Interesting. I mean, that's fair. I mean, I guess it, it depends on the, the viewer reading into the film more. And honestly, like that's something I, the, I was the kind of person probably it's like pre-2018, 2019, who wouldn't look beyond the surface like that. You know, like I, I was very, that's something, again, I, this is part of my baggage. I learned that from the movie script. You know, there, there's, um, there have been a number of stories on that show repeat something that you, that I thought was like, okay, this is just a throwaway thing, or this is a, a failing. And they said, well, no, it, it's, it's meant to be this. And I think that's one of those things that we forget how intentional the filmmaking and how intensive that process is. Um, you know, like from the creative side, they just, there, there are decisions made. I, I remember, for example, there was, uh, something Roger Ebert once wrote about the film Chop Shop by Ramin Barani. Uh, which is a really beautiful film. If you haven't seen it, check it out. But he did, a, I think, a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown at some kind of conference or something like that where he was breaking it down. But basically, there's a shot of a truck on the street and the kids running past the truck and the director, Barani, froze the frame and said, okay, so see the stickers on the back of that truck. Like, we argued for like an hour about what stickers would be on the back of that truck. And I don't think as viewers, we tend to look at the process as being that granular. Um, but, but, and which is not as a defense. Cause again, I, th I think you're right. I think it's, it's just close enough to being shoddy that you're like, well, maybe I don't, this is just a function of, of what they had to work with. Yeah. No, you know, and I think with all the things we've talked about here, the appearance, the Lovecraft, the, the connections reanimator, my overarching critique, and, and I, I hear you that it sounds like there was some intentionality which, you know, I guess intentionality, if it, if it seems effortless, is, is doing it well in, in one regard, you could argue. But it's still been lost, I think, on anyone who doesn't listen to this podcast. But overall, the way my overall impression of the film is it felt like a film that leaned too heavily on fan service tropes. All these connections to Reanimator. Like, hey, look, guess what? <laughs> you know, uh, we've got Barbara Crampton. Oh, look, it's the same, you know, uh, med school, uh, you know, the security guard doesn't even remind you, you know, just, and then you've got the Lovecraftian lore that just kind of was shoved in the film, like the stories built on it. But then they've got that creepy old book filled with sketches that to me just felt like we've talked about in past films that just like, oh, hey, Lovecraft. And it felt like it did that. It, it I actually would have preferred if the book that that book wasn't in there and it just pulled on the Lovecraft narrative without the hey look here's a book with Lovecraft sketches in case you didn't know and then you know then having the familiar face in Heather Graham and even you know that sort of the the you know you describe the horniness of it right you know make oh hey you know if that's not enough for you let's let's get something that you know also could be shown you know late night on whatever and all that just felt ham-handedly put together in a way for me that just really didn't work. It, it just felt kind of, I hate to say this, but kind of cheaply kind of cobbled together all those elements to say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll throw something in there that someone's going to like, and one of these things will work for you. And 
you know, which, which one works for you? Do you like Heather Graham? Here she is. Do you like Lovecraft? There you go. You know, you like Rain, your animator? Here you go. You know, so to me, that just really didn't work as a cohesive vision. Right. And, and I do think that can be a problem when you are trying to pay tribute to something as esteemed as, well, as, as the work of Stuart Gordon. You know, his presence looms large over the horror industry of, of the 70s or sorry, of the, of the 80s and 90s. And I think that, yeah, that's the danger when you're trying to pay tribute to all these things. And, and obviously there's nods to Brian De Palma in the film. I think that you, you stand sort of stand, run the risk of, of kind of having too many ingredients, but not enough, not enough meal. I, I will say for me, the film really takes off at about the 45 minute mark. Even watching it the second time this morning, I was, yeah, I, the, the opening, I'm like, okay, this is, this is fine. But around the 45 minute mark, when it really starts running, and I feel like that's after it's gotten all these kind of nods out of the way. That's when I thought, okay, this really picks up steam. And like when it, when you get right to the end, like it, I think it gets nuts. And that's when I really started to to love it. Like I liked it. The, I, I liked it more than you did, obviously, but I loved it uh, as it got crazier towards the end as, as the body swapping amps up. They do some stuff where you think, holy Christ, I can't believe they're going to do this. And uh, to contrast that, I saw Thanksgiving last night, which is a new slasher film from Eli Roth. And it is a better, more cohesive movie. I mean, I think he probably had more resources to work with, but regardless, it is a more cohesive film. However, when it goes bonkers, I actually found it kind of ugly and unpleasant. Whereas when Suitable Flesh goes bonkers, I kind of felt like, yeah, this is fun. And, and I think that's where the film succeeds is, is really going off the rails in a way that's fun, not in a way like in uh, Thanksgiving, you know, there's a scene where someone's cooked alive in an oven and then part of their thigh is cut off and served at dinner. And it's just, it just fucking grossed me out. Like, I, I don't like cannibalism shit anyways. I really, as I've mentioned before on this show, I struggle with that. But that's something I, I appreciated about this is as, as fucked up as it got, it never felt mean. I will say... The points in the film where it kind of, as you described, kind of goes kind of crazy there towards the end. I will say those were some, for me, the stronger points of the film, you know, when the body switching starts kind of amping up and, and, you know, and kind of that last kind of, you know, from really from the point where she's at her office and the window throws out and then hitting him with the card. Like, not that I loved that brutality, but oh, that's when shit got real. And from there on, it was probably the strongest part of the film for me. Right. I, I see. I think for me, when it really hit was when, I don't know what, I mean, it's, it's technically Ace's father, but I get the impression that obviously this person, or not get the impression it says in the film, this person is much older than that. This, this being that switches out of Ace's father into Asa and then into Elizabeth. When he, when he uh, locks himself, handcuffs himself to the pole and switches with Elizabeth and has sex with her husband. That's for me where the film really took off because th then it was like, okay, now it's ev everyone's on 100. Because I think for me, I, w I wasn't, I thought Heather's, Heather Graham's performance wasn't great, but there were periods where it was. And I think when it was great was when she was playing the traveler in Elizabeth's body. When she got to have some fun with it, I think that's when her performance really kind of really got engaging. You know, so when she was sort of playing this this male entity inhabiting the body of a woman and experiencing the world through the body of a woman. I thought that was really cool and really interesting. And that, like I said, when she fucks Heather Graham's husband and just goes nuts and, and, and you know, just, again, she really, 
embodied that well. And again, from, and from that point on, that's, that's when I was like, okay, no, I, I get what this is trying to do and it's, it's succeeding uh, for me. And, and that was something Lynch has said in interviews is he, the original script was not, was different in that it was very male. So the Asa character was a woman and the two doctors were male. And he decided that one of the things that had to change during the process was he wanted to flip the genders. So he wanted to have, uh, have it be basically a, a movie from the female gaze. So, you know, the, though there is female nudity, the men are more often shown, you know, topless or in sort of these more cheesecakey type poses. And, and, you know, they're very like handsome, like Jude Lewis is a good looking guy. Jonathan Shock is annoyingly attractive. And yeah, so he wanted to shoot it from that point of view. And I, I, again, I think it lended itself in a much more interesting way to explorations of identity. I will say that that probably was a good decision because the dynamic of a male therapist and if any kind of female kind of troubled, you know, person coming in would have been a very different dynamic and maybe in a problematic way. Have you seen Color of Night? I have not. Okay. So that's it's kind of, that's what that is to a certain degree. It, that's a, and I think Lynch has mentioned that was one of his, uh, one of his many inspirations. It's an erotic thriller from the 90s starring Bruce Willis and Jane March. You ever want to? You ever want to have a nice evening in with your your lady friend? Fire up the director's cut of uh, of Color of Night and gaze upon Bruce Willis's penis in a swimming pool. <laughs> I think I'll pass on that. But thank you. Well, don't say um, I don't try and help you hook you up with fun things to do. <laughs> I would never say that of the many things I would say. But, uh, <laughs> let's not dwell. Move on. Well, so let's talk about that though, because you know my ex wife is a therapist, so I've I know a little bit from conversations with her about kind of the ethical things about practicing therapy. And, you know, obviously she's always maintained confidentiality. So she's never discussed clients, but she has discussed in general, the profession and and how you approach that and and boundaries. And certainly, you know, you have been very open about mental health um, in in your podcasts. and, And, you know, we both have seen therapists over the years and, you know, understand the importance of that and the importance of destigmatizing that. But this therapist is played by Heather Graham, is breaking so many rules and best practices. And, and even before she kind of gets pulled in and seduced, so to speak, like, like even like, you know, when she, he initially comes to her practice and, and, you know, she gives him her own personal number and, and there's just all these things that any therapist, she's from the, from the office setting she has, she's a successful therapist. Having a private practice, most therapists have to spend a lot of years working for community agencies before they start a private practice, you know, and I, again, I, I saw my ex-wife build one and, and there's a lot of work to go and to have an office space like she had and, you know, having the space she had, clearly she put in a lot of work and was good at what she did. At least, you know, that character would have had to have been to get to that place Uh, and to have her break so many rules just so quickly. And it, it, it just, Again, it's it's fiction. I get it, and maybe this is just kind of maybe part of my baggage. I probably didn't mention of my, you know my experience, you know, having been married to a therapist and seeing that from from you know kind of the the other side of that, but just lacked a lot of realism for me in terms of what how she operated as a therapist in that situation. I mean, that's something I think this film is is not meant 
to be is, mm-hmm. is realistic. Like, I think it's all meant to be very heightened for one. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm uh, I mean, obviously, aside from the body swapping uh, yeah. time monster. But like, I just think, you know, it's, it's, it's very it's a very yeah. heightened film. Um, but also, I, I think that's sort of an interesting place to jump off is that is looking at someone who is successful in their field, but who is at a point in their life where they're going through the motions and they're bored. And I, I think this is where infidelity happens. Like, I think this is where people make the big mistakes that torpedo their reputations, because though they may not consciously realize they're bored, they start taking, or they rather, I should say, they are open to risks that come their way. Even if they don't realize that's what they're doing, they say, oh, well, this opportunity to do X. And maybe, you know, they'll rationalize it a different way, but really they're doing it because they're bored. And this is just a little spike of adrenaline. This, this, little, bit, this little bit of transgression is adding some spice to their day and some excitement. But, you know, the thing about transgression is that it's, it's rarely a one-time event. And usually it's, it's something that is continual, you know, like you make a decision, it puts you in a position. Can you go back from that position? Not really. And, and I think that's actually one of the great things about erotic thrillers, you know, is you see a character who is a good person, you know, uh, they've, they've done well, they've, they've achieved, but they've, they, especially in, again in the nineties when this was sort of such a thing, right? I mean, now no one has any money. We can't be stable. But, you know, in the 90s, you could uh, buy Kevin McAllister's house on the, uh, you know, the salary of a middle manager, and you could become comfortable enough to go and, you know, do a sex game with your neighbors that turns into a murder. That's consenting adults, right? Like, that's, that's the plot of that movie, where this guy is doing, doing well, but just this little bit of danger comes into his life. And he, he just thinks, okay, well, ah, just this once. But it's it's rare. I mean, in movies maybe it's it's obvious. It's got if it's, if it's only just this once, it's a very boring film. But like you know, you, you make a decision, and that decision can change who you are and put you on a completely completely different path. So I don't think that's totally out of line for the character. Like I think, I mean, one total stability makes for a boring movie. But but two, I think I think that's an interesting comment on where people find themselves at a certain point in their life. I mean, Heather Graham's in her 50s. So if we take it that this character is in her 50s and all of a sudden this beautiful, lost young man finds his way into her life and, and like kind of touches her, like physically touches her and in a way that no one has. And obviously there was that mixture where the traveler was in his body and he was quite sexually aggressive to her. You can see where that's going to poke a little bit of a hole in the normality and allow you to look through and see like, well, there's something kind of horny on the other side. I'm a little bit curious. And you start reaching through the barrier. But of course, once the barrier is punctured, it's punctured and and the hole can only get bigger. So again, I don't think it's out of line to say that this is an interesting comment on how people end up having extramarital affairs. So what I'm hearing, Bren, is that Part of the reason I struggled with that, and maybe my flaw, is I'm too well-adjusted and too stable in my life. I don't know what it says about you that you got that so immediately about this, but um, listen, just say it. Hey, hey, Joseph? Hey, yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Success! Yes. <laughs> that makes sense, so yeah, all, all jokes aside, and to your point, 
I, I think as much as the realism that would, you know, maybe not kind of resonate with me, if we're looking at what the director was attempting to do here to emulate that 90s Skinamax kind of approach towards film as how this character played by Heather Graham would narrate her own experience, right? That that is very much the setup for that kind of film, right? A therapist and then a client, you know, so so within what the director seemed to be trying to accomplish, I would concede that makes sense. Another point is, uh, and I read about, I read this in an interview, you know, she is, of course, she's narrating her life, but her husband is gorgeous. And why, that's right, I'm, I'm, Jonathan Sheck is fucking gorgeous. That's twice you've described the males in this film as gorgeous. Not, not judging, just pointing out. Am I wrong? No, Brian, you're right. No. You're very handsome and smart. <laughs> Thanks, Joseph. Um, but, you know, why would she do that? And one, one, I mean, how many times have we heard people say, well, their so-and-so spouse is gorgeous. Why would he fuck around? And two, um, the point, a point Lynch made was that, again, she is telling the story. So this is her version of her life. She is an unreliable narrator. And uh, apparently the original script called for her husband to kind of be a short, a short, nerdy guy to be her husband. But uh, one, Lynch liked working with Shaq on uh, Creepshow. But two, he thought it's more interesting and, and it, you have to, it, it presents a, a deeper question. If like, no, the person at home is actually quite beautiful, but they're still going outside for this. So why do people stray? And I, like I, I, think, I think that stuff is, is a really interesting part of the film. I mean, all the, the, the boobs. I mean, hey, I'm on board. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, Heather Graham at 50 is, is far more attractive than I have or ever will be. <laughs> Uh, but, and to say the less, again, of Jonathan Jack and, and Jude Lewis, even Bruce Davison. I mean, what the hell? He looks great. He's, he's an older gentleman. He still looks good. But uh, he can watch, is what I'm saying. <laughs> 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 but anyways, yeah, I, I, think it, I think that is where it gets interesting, is, is in what it says about infidelity, what it says about suburban malaise. Honestly, I, I think there's a lot in there about marital anxiety that I found compelling. Obviously, the, the traveler takes over Elizabeth's body, goes to, fucks her husband, and, and really kind of blows his mind because we see their previous lovemaking was not very exciting for her. You know, he wasn't really doing much of anything, and it really, for her to enjoy herself, she had to imagine it was Asa or who she thinks Asa is. Of course, that's a lot more complicated. But then when the traveler takes over her body, she rocks his world. When she comes back, one, she's got to deal with a violation of the fact that not only was someone else in her body, that it, it, it then did things with it, which was a choice she had no part in, in making. But also, he enjoyed it more than he did with her. And I think that touches a really deep insecurity in that what if someone can give the people we love something they need better than we can? Even though, you know, obviously Lynch is a man and, and Dennis Paoli, the writer, is a man, I don't think that's an exclusively male anxiety. You know, I think we, we all, I think regardless of our, of our sex, I think we find ourselves worrying about that, right? Like we, if we're good partners, we worry that, yeah, maybe there's something we can't do. And, and I think that's one of the, I mean, this is maybe murkier waters than we want to get into, but I think that's one of the dangers of the monogamous mindset is like, we have to be everything to our partner, but what if we're not? And this is not me arguing for polyamory because I don't like board games, but 
I'm just saying, like this is that's a reasonable anxiety. If if you're if you're supposed to be everything to your partner, what if someone is better at certain things than you are? You know, whether it's they are uh, more supportive emotionally, or they're funnier, or you know, maybe they're better in bed, or whatever, right? Like, what does that mean? Then, what does that say for your relationship? And I think that's that's an interesting question. I think it's a scary question. Yeah, the point you make is one I thought about watching the film in terms of how that probably for you know, Heather Graham's character was very, you know, kind of, it, it gets at your sense. It, it really attacks your sense of worth if, wow, the, you know, this person just inhabited my body and, you know, gave my husband a much better experience. Right. And then how, how, you know, that can hit on insecurities and, you know, and, and so many things, uh, you know, and the, but there's the larger point you make um, in terms of, you know, the, what, we are expected to be for our partners. And while, you know, I think people will have different opinions on this. I think there's certain areas where if you're going to have a relationship that there needs to be certain types of intimacy that are points of connection for the relationship that need to kind of be what you are. But there's other times and spaces like social interactions and, and people to, you know, like I think in a good partnership, you have people you can confide in, in addition to your partner so that, that you're not, putting all that burden on them all the time, you know, and, and, you know, you should have hobbies and things you do, you know, that are your thing so that there's not the uh, responsibility in your partner to always entertain you or, or always be on for you. Right. So, so the, I think there's a balance there of, of knowing where the places where that needs to be my person for this part of my life and where are the places where I need to have other places and people that meet other kinds of social kinds of needs so that we have room to breathe, right? As people. Oh, and I agree. But what, what you're describing is a healthy view of these things. What, what I'm describing, what, <laughs> whereas what I'm referring to are the people for whom, because I, I do think a prevailing yeah. narrative in the culture is that, no, you, you, you have to be the other person's everything. Like they, you know, if, if they have any kind of emotional connection with someone else, even someone of the, like of the opposite gender, that is you know, the amount of idiots I've seen on social media referring to that as emotional cheating. That's insanity. You've got these really hard puritanical lines about what is and isn't acceptable. And, and I think that is like, that's, that's one, that's, it's scary. And two, I, 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 that's more what I'm speaking to is this, the cultural idea that no, no, like this is your other person. So, I mean, how many, we all know people who get into relationships and then disappear, you know, like that's, this is, this other person is now their world and how damaging is it when you find out that, well, no, this other person actually he goes and hangs out with his buddies and they make him laugh. And he, the way he laughs with them is not the way he laughs with me. Doesn't mean it's lesser than, but if you view everything within this very narrow field, that is upsetting because all of a sudden you, you're questioning everything. I, I've, I, not just I think, I've seen people do this. I have seen this mentality, you know, in action. I, I, I mean, I, my first relationship was an emotionally abusive one. And I have been part of the situation. And like, that's, it's insane that someone at 20 would think that way. But if, you know, people are what we teach them to be. And I think that's sort of the natural extension of, of this notion of nuclear family. Every successive generation has to be a unit unto itself, a self-contained consuming unit, you know, mom and dad, two kids, and then the kids have kids. And then they don't see mom and dad anymore except for periodically, and they're their own self-contained unit. And, you know, what happens when the kids leave? Well, it's just mom and dad as the unit. And they, they get smaller and smaller 
and smaller. And, and we just, we need that connection. We can't be this, we can't be like a, like a flow chart. We got to be a web. And I, th- I think what happens is we, we come to, we just, we become more distilled into the worst parts of ourselves and we rely on each other more and we, we draw from each other more. And I think it, it makes us less happy. You know, that's something, interestingly enough, I talk about in my sociology classes from time to time, like the nuclear family and how that is a product of kind of industrial and post-industrial societies. Okay. So there's a little sociology in here. Like, um, and there's a little bit of a Marxian argument about that in terms of like, it, I'm going to go super nerdy academic here, but Marx's historical materialism, where he talks about how the economic base, like the, the economic system, which he's talking about capitalism. And then you have the superstructure, which are all the other institutions in society, the education, religion, family as an institution, and how the superstructure, the institutions are shaped based on the need of the economic system. Well, capitalism as an economic system needs labor to be able to go wherever, fluid, right? You know, so with the, like I live in Southwest Georgia because that's where the job was. And when, if you need labor to go wherever the work is, the nuclear family has to be able to be self-contained because my siblings and cousins were not coming with me, right? And you look in pre-industrial societies, like traditional societies, you know, you had kind of the, the hunter-gatherer tribes and such, the kinship networks were much more broader. Uh, cousins hung out like they were siblings. Parenting and, you know, they talk about takes a village. Well, you know, if you were a parent, it's not like you were on 24 hours a day. You, you, you could go take a nap or sleep because the family unit, larger kinship would, the kids would run around as a herd and everyone would watch them. And, and now we live in this world where, you know, mothers like are just overwhelmed by not getting enough sleep, especially with young children. And you're just, that family has to be that self-contained unit. And it extends to what you're talking about, where we also feel like the nuclear family has to meet all of our emotional needs and such. And it, it's just, it's this really weird, interesting and problematic artifact of kind of industrial and post-industrial capitalism. Yeah. And I think it puts us in a position where our worth is what we can offer our partner. And if they don't need us for everything, then we are not needed. And if we are not needed, we are not necessary. And if, you know, because under the capitalist system, our value is in what we can offer, you know, like what, what, what we can provide like that. We, our value is only based on what we can provide. We have no intrinsic value as existing people. And I think that's where it gets scary. And I think that actually is sort of where this ties us into some of the other movies we've done, like Influencer, where, you know, your value is what people assign to you. And if people no longer assign value to you, are you still valuable? You know, how do you find value in, in, a, play, in a world that sort of really encourages you to seek validation outside yourself? And again, I think in the case of, of the, the, the nuclear family and in the case of this film, you know, Elizabeth and her husband find validation in each other. Like, for example, when he comes back from, or when she comes back the day after meeting Asa, you know, he gets really chapped that she doesn't ask about his day. And I mean, sure, you know, that happens some, like, I, I, you know, it's, it's a little bit not great if your spouse is constantly never giving a shit about your day, but if they're just having a weird day and they don't think to ask, like, that's not a big deal, but for him it is because she is not assigning value to him. And so I think in that, the film, again, I brought up some stuff I wasn't expecting it to bring up about marriage and about connection. No, that makes sense. There's a lot of interesting themes there. All right, I'm going to go in a little bit different direction here. Going back to the plot, and that was actually the whole kind of 
kind of switching of, you know, uh, consciousness it was interesting to me that was one of the things i did like about the film but there was a film that it reminded me of that i liked better and maybe part of that is the budget and the production but um have you seen the 2005 film the skeleton key featuring kate hudson uh a long time ago it, 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 i saw it once okay. it didn't stick yeah you know it didn't stick for a lot of people it's it kind of got you know it's like a two and a half out of five stars kind of a review sort of a film um you know so it wasn't necessarily the most influential film, but it did sort of the consciousness switching thing, but in a way that I thought was more interesting, you know, it took its, it, it took itself more seriously. And maybe for that perspective, maybe it didn't land as well, but you know, it, it's, it's, you know, set in kind of, I think in Louisiana, if I'm not mistaken, and it, you know, it plays on kind of the hoodoo voodoo stuff a little, uh, they, they make a point to say, well, no, it's hoodoo, uh, in the film. But, um, you know, there, there's there's a lot of racial undertones with that and, you know, sort of, and, and the history of that. So it reminded me of that. And I thought the Skeleton Key did a better job with the particular details of the narrative. I get, though, that this film is going with a Lovecraftian source material. So there's something specific to that. Now, one of the things, though, that the Skeleton Key, I think, did better, though, is it hit on some of the the issues of race because there's you know there's some lynching involved and very, obviously very problematic part of the American history, but it gets on some of those those kind of notes and you know again it's taking itself much more seriously so it's going to try to hit those notes. Right, oh, that's fair. I mean, I I don't think the film again there's something I appreciated about Suitable Flesh is it it didn't take itself uh, as seriously like I, th I think it is meant to be a little bit. Not satirical, but again, a little, a little bit camp. I mean, it, it, so much Lovecraft stuff is really oppressive, and there, I think it manages to touch those themes without letting them completely uh, just wreck you—not wreck, but like have you walk out of the film feeling really deflated. Because obviously, Lovecraft's his whole thing is, you know, the loss of autonomy, the loss of of humanity, and the total irrelevance of the human experience. But I felt like the film really managed to sort of transmute that into something that was creepy if you engaged with it. But again, it, it didn't leave you feeling hollowed out afterwards. And, and what, what I mean by that, I guess, is like, obviously the, the traveler, the, the creature that's living inside Ace's dad at the beginning of the film, you know, he, he's very old and totally amoral. And one of the things that I find creepy in films is when you run up against something like that, because you almost know there's no way to beat it. Something like that is just going to be smarter than you. It is just going to be better at outthinking you because it's just had more time. And you know, you're dealing with something again, like very old that to which your humanity does not matter. And and I remember reading uh is it Dave Grossman, I think. He wrote a book called On Killing, which is this really comprehensive study of murder. Uh, throughout, you know, war, the history of warfare and things like this. And he kind of went on to be not so great a guy, so don't, don't read any of his later books. But On Killing is, is interesting. And one of the things that he talks about is, is that for people who have experienced direct personal violence, one of the most shattering parts of it, the most paralyzing parts of it, is the rejection of their humanity. So for someone, in, or, in order for someone to be able to, to target you, they have to disregard your humanity. And that 
these studies found, like to have your humanity disregarded is maybe the most horrifying part of an assault. Like you're, you, who you are is irrelevant. You, this person, you are a target to them or, or whatever to them. And I think that's what makes Lovecraft so frightening is, is like your humanity is disregarded. And certainly, you know, this thing, that is how it feels. Like your humanity is worthless. The life you have built, it's all just a, a toy for this thing. And that is, I, I felt kind of always lurking just under the surface of the film. And I really liked that uh, because again, it's, it's such a, a dread provoking thing that I think is, it's easy to overplay. And I think it's, it's harder to sort of underplay that to the point where just enough where it's a threat. But again, it doesn't, it doesn't choke out the rest of the film. Sometimes we use words so much that they lose their impact and efficacy. But there's a, as you describe that, there's, there's this word that we use all the time uh, to be objectified. And it, it, we use that word so much that we almost, you know, kind of don't think about what it really means, but it be, means to be turned into an object, right? To go from being a person that has humanity to an object that is a target and a source of gratification or whatever. And, and, that I think is, you know, what you're talking about, and, you know, I've never experienced that, any, anything like that, but I, you know, I can imagine or try to imagine, you know, how, how that would really mess with you emotionally, psychologically that, you know, you live in a world where people do treat you as a person and people have, you know, see value in you and you have relationships with people. And then all of a sudden someone comes along for whom that is irrelevant and you are an object. And that could be quite the mind. I mean, you know, I use this example. I have a friend who is very intelligent woman, uh, well-read, very just, she's great at examining topics from multiple angles and reaching conclusions. She has multiple degrees, but she also has the misfortune of being beautiful. And one of the most frustrating things in my life over the course of our friendship, and we've been friends for more than a decade now, is consistently seeing people treat her simply on the basis of her looks and her personality. She she presents as a very bubbly person, you know. And it, it's a little bit of you know it's it's a little bit of masking. We we both are neurodivergent in in similar ways. Um, I just don't mask. I look like a zombie all the time. Whereas she you know she tries to be a human. But yeah, it's it's frustrating as shit for me to watch. I cannot imagine. I mean, I know how frustrating it is for her to a degree because she tells me. But like to to see someone who is possessed of all this incredible brain power being talked to by idiots like she is irrelevant that is true horror you know that that is i mean and this is an example i use more often the writer april wolf uh she's a screenwriter very funny person if you're not following her on social media you should be uh she used to have a podcast called switchblade sisters and i can't remember who she was talking to anymore but she would interview female directors and writers uh, it's actually where I heard about The Long Walk, that film you and I both enjoyed. She once had a guest on, and they likened Lovecraft, Lovecraftian horror to the female experience, especially prior to, say, the latter half of the 20th century, because you, you didn't have humanity in the prevailing view. You were a possession. You were a thing. You were an object. And you had no choice in your, or little choice in your fate, in how you were treated, in, in the direction of your life. And that is cosmic horror. You, know, you are subject to the whims of things far greater than yourself. 
and or, or in, in the case of Cosmicor, they actually are greater than yourself. And I guess in the case of pre-liberation life of a woman, yeah, it was the same. I mean, these the, these the people who had power made the decisions for you, and and that's what you got to do. And that is a horrifying thought, man. Like that is my nightmares writ large. And that is that is the female experience in much of you know history. Yeah, yeah. Um, is what you know what 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 a woman experienced on Tuesday for you is you know nightmare fuel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think that's one of the virtues of the film is that again it it decided to flip that instead of having the, I mean to a certain degree the woman is still acted upon, but I guess it, it's you're almost going to reinforce that no matter what you do. Um, but you know at least we we got to see the film from the perspective of a woman who got to choose. I mean she was she made the wrong choice she was presented with a choice and she made it and she made the wrong one, but you know she at least had the agency to make that choice. All right, Joseph, any more thoughts on suitable flesh? You know, in, in general, you know, the, I, I mean, I, I was entertained. You liked it much more than I did. But uh, the, there, there certainly were some interesting themes to talk about in terms of identity and things like that. And, you know, and, and some, some of the things I didn't realize we would get into, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, the nuclear family and, and, you know, gender kind of elements of it. So, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was overall, I think, it certainly gave us some things to talk about. And as you've kind of unpacked some of the, the things that the director did with intentionality, I, I, I can see into coming into focus some of the value of the film that maybe I didn't see in first watching it. Fair enough. I mean, in fairness, a lot of your complaints are similar to other reviews. Like this is actually a very well-reviewed film. This is actually one of the better reviewed films we've covered on the show. But um, still, those are points that have been made. And I, again, I don't disagree with them. Like I say, the first half I felt was kind of all over the place. Not a slog. Not it's, I never found it a slog. But the second half, I was really I'm I'm on board because again, I I watch a lot of those '90s erotic thrillers and sort of detective movies. Actually, my wife and I watch a lot of those. Like we will sit down and I'll try and find '80s and '90s. Uh, not not necessarily erotic thrillers, but kind of detective movies that always have those sort of elements to them. Stuff like uh, like Dream Lover, Slam Dance. Even a little more offbeat stuff like the sketch artist or uh, consenting adults, as I mentioned. All films I have not seen. That's fair. I mean, some of them you don't need to. I didn't like Dream Lover. Sketch artist, I think, is a ton of fun. It's on Tubi. Uh, it features Jeff Fahey as a police sketch artist who gets caught up in some intrigue. And that one's actually, I think, a good movie. The sequel, Sketch Artist 2, The Hands That See, that is a bad movie that is absolutely worth watching because <laughs> Courtney Cox plays a blind woman who identifies her attacker using her hands and manages to somehow communicate that to the sketch artist. So it's more of like a legal thriller. The first one's more of a detective, traditional detective film. The second one's more of a legal thriller and it's just ludicrous and it's, it's a ton of fun. Yeah, so I have a background in these movies. I love these kinds of movies. So this, so this really slotted into that for me. So again, that and my enthusiasm generally for Joe Lynch, I think, colors my perception of the film. But I, I agree with a lot of your criticisms. I, I think it, it has a lot of issues. I think it works in spite of them. But I, I have to agree that it, it certainly has them. All right. Well, that does it for our thoughts on Suitable Flesh. You can find that. Uh, that's going to be on Shutter starting January. Uh, I think as of this release, it might still be in a handful of theaters in the U.S. As, to the best of my knowledge, it did not play in Canada. Uh, I tried. I just bought it on Prime so I could watch it. But uh, yeah, 
You'll be able to stream it on Shutter. And I know there is a hardcover, or hardcover, there's a hard copy coming from uh, RLJ. I think it's RLJ. They're doing a Blu-ray. There's going to be commentaries on there. So if you're a fan of physical media and you like the movie, pick it up because Lynch's commentaries are always interesting. And uh, I think they did a bunch of, or I think he did a, a bunch of behind the scenes stuff. So again, if you're a nerd like me, you will enjoy that kind of stuff. Although sometimes Shutter does post commentaries. So I think there will be one there for Suitable Flesh, but I think it will be different from the one on the Blu-ray. Joseph, my friend, where can everyone find you online? Well, you can find me uh, on Twitter at J-O-K-O-M-O-1-3, or you can find me if you're into NFL football. My other thing is the Cardinal Rule on YouTube. Fantastic. I am Largely the Truth on Letterboxd, Threads, Blue Sky, and Instagram. And you can find my other show, The Ghost Story Guys, everywhere. Find podcasts live. This show is edited by Tanya Downing. Our music is provided by The Revenants. The Revenants are a project of Boston-based musician Elliot Wilder. You can find more from him at therevenants1.bandcamp.com or on streaming platforms everywhere. And our theme song is Rest in Peace, also by The Revenants, from their album Music from Big Beige. We will be back in two weeks. But until then, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? Let me rest.